0: Can we bring coral reefs back from the dead? I'm Benji Jones, and I write for Vox about the environment, conservation, and biodiversity. And today, I'm your host for Vox Conversations. I've had the privilege of scuba diving on a coral reef which can be a pretty magical experience. You get to enter another world full of life and color. I've been followed by a giant manta ray. I have swum next to a 10-foot shark. And I once spooked an octopus that was devouring a conch. I absolutely love being in these underwater worlds. That's why it was so sad for me to learn that these environments, that coral reefs, are dying. The Great Barrier Reef has always been Australia's treasure, but now the largest living structure on the planet is becoming the largest dying structure.
1: Vast amounts of coral is being killed off.
0: The numbers are dramatic and the consequences are far, far greater than the loss of magical scuba dives. The decline of the world's coral reefs imperils us all. Which is why I'm so eager to talk with my guest today, Hannah Cook. Hannah's a marine biologist in the Florida Keys and part of a legion of scientists racing to bring coral reefs back from the dead. I gotta say, I report on a lot of solutions to protect and restore ecosystems that fail or even backfire. But this seems different, and it might just work. Hannah is a researcher at the Moat Marine Laboratory and Aquarium, and as far as I'm concerned, she's living the dream. So you are a marine biologist, of course, which is like the dream job of so many children out there. (laughs) It was the dream job for me. You're actually doing it, which is incredible. Do you like scuba diving?
2: I love scuba diving. I feel just as, if not more comfortable in the water than out of the water. I feel so at peace in the water, and I love being in the ocean and just especially diving, Mm. as opposed to snorkeling. I'd rather be... In and among the ocean organisms than just looking at them from above. Totally. So I actually got certified in 2007. I had no idea about the coral reef crisis or that I would end up actually working with coral reefs. But then I saw what I imagined to be pristine reefs, just so healthy, so diverse, so colorful you see a plethora of organisms, marine invertebrates, corals, sea fans, sea cucumbers, sea urchins, fish. Hmm. And I've always been attracted and fascinated by the craziest, creepiest, most bizarre, weird (laughs) organisms. Yes, yes. Which are usually ones that you find under rocks or in holes or in crevices. And so I was As close as you could be to the reef itself, looking in the small little divots and holes and caves and crevices. Mm. And that's where you find maybe an octopus or brittle stars. And of course, you see the larger fish and sharks as well swimming around within the water column.
0: Have you had any frightening encounters with any of these marine creatures?
2: I would say the most frightening encounter I had, I was diving off Catalina Island And I was doing some fish surveys, and the visibility was not great, and the sun was going down. And we all know that when the sun goes down, that's feeding time. (laughs) And I saw a couple of thresher sharks circling us, so we got out. Oh, wow. (laughs) That was in California. And since I've been diving, I haven't had any Scary encounters with any organisms.
0: That is very good. Yeah. I love talking about reefs just because my experience diving, and I haven't done it very much, but it's like you are literally just immersed in a world that is not yours or that does not feel like yours. And while there's some of the discomfort around being underwater that deep with a lot of pressure around, you get to just like be an observer with all of the stuff going around. I mean, it's like a metropolis underwater when you're on a healthy reef, right?
2: Definitely. And it forces you to be in the moment. So you are. A- only thinking about what you are doing and seeing in that moment, which is such a nice break for your brain in a way. You know, it's like the best live show that you could observe. And <laughs> there's always something new to see and there's always something happening. So it's, it's just fascinating.
0: And I love the small life as well as the big life. So you talk about sharks, but there's also like the tiny shrimp and so forth. What are just some examples of cool little tiny things that you see in under rocks that if you really spend the time to just... Sit and wait, you get to actually see something very cool.
2: You just described it tiny little shrimp that you hear clicking noises a lot of time. Reefs are very active, and a healthy reef is a very vibrant reef with a lot of noises. So you might hear a little tiny shrimp, or you might lift a rock and see a brittle star. Or you might see a sea cucumber, which at first you think is, what is that? And it's like this just round little rotund thing moving along. Or you might see sea urchins in sort of like the rocks that they bore holes in. Mm. And probably one of the coolest things is when you're looking on a reef and then all of a sudden you see a big eye looking back at you. And that's actually happened to me multiple times. And it's the eye of
0: an octopus.
2: And and at first it takes you a second to realize what you're looking at. But when you (laughs) do, you're just like, oh my gosh.
0: Yeah, exactly. So this is obviously an incredible environment from just a pure wonder perspective. And it's really enjoyable to get to spend time in these environments. I'm just curious, like, to the average person who has not had the opportunity to go diving, like, why do reefs matter? What is so important about these ecosystems beyond just, like, the recreational value of them?
2: So coral reefs are some of the most diverse and important ecosystems on the planet. They provide a wide range of economic, environmental, and ecosystem services, you know, beyond just food and recreation and tourism, but they also protect shorelines. Hmm. So they absorb wave energy and storm energy and protect organisms, including humans, that live on coastlines and shorelines. They provide food, shelter, habitat to other reef organisms. They only cover less than 1% of the ocean floor, but support more than 25% of all marine species. Wow, They're a source of major oxygen producers. So the majority of oxygen on the planet, Coral Reefs support that through marine microbes and marine algae. They're also considered the medicine cabinets of the 21st century. A lot of medicines and treatments have been... Developed through organisms that are found on coral reefs, including novel building materials as well. Wow. And in terms of like tourism and economic services, they're worth about $375 billion every year globally.
0: Okay, that's a big list.
2: <laughs> that's a big list, exactly. So there are a lot of reasons why we should care about them because they have importance on so many levels. And I would say that everyone on this planet, directly or indirectly, benefits from coral reefs and the services that they provide.
0: Yes, just to underscore this point, like even if you are on land, you can benefit a lot from coral reefs. I've written about the kind of hurricane protection aspect of this. And you can literally think of reefs as like a underwater seawall, which is amazing. And it's doing it naturally. Like we don't have to spend the time and money to build out walls like these are just here already.
2: Correct. Right. I mean, the rainforest of the sea, and as you mentioned, millions of people rely on the protective barrier that they provide people that live on the coastlines.
0: So you just laid out why these systems are so cool, why they matter so much. So what is happening to them?
2: Right. So as I said, they're some of the most diverse and important ecosystems on the planet. But over the last 30, 40, 50 years, they've experienced rapid and severe declines in health and abundance globally as a result of rapid climate change, which includes things like ocean warming, Mm. ocean acidification, and even increases
0: in infectious diseases. And how severe are these declines? Like, are we losing a quarter of our reefs? Are we losing a half?
2: Sure. So I can give you some different scales. Globally, about half of the world's coral reefs are gone. It's a lot. Great Barrier Reef, about 50%. The Caribbean and Western Atlantic, about 80%. Wow. And in fact, in Florida alone, coral cover used to be about 30 to 40%. It's now down to 2%. Oh my God. Many species have experienced... Population declines greater than 95%. So, in terms of like expectations or predictions with coral cover loss, there's actually predictions that 90% of our coral reefs will be gone
0: by 2050.
2: Wow. So, if we don't intervene, if we don't continue to try to reduce carbon emissions and do things like restoration.
0: And just on the climate change side of this, that is kind of like a double punch for reefs, right? Because you have not only the warming waters, which can push coral past their limit of what they can tolerate, but also It's making oceans more acidic. Is that right?
2: Right. So, we discussed ocean warming and ocean acidification. And briefly, those processes are a result of when we do things like drive our cars and burn fossil fuels, that produces carbon dioxide that goes into our atmosphere and that acts as a greenhouse gas, which traps heat in our atmosphere and warms the planet. Well, with an excess of these activities, you have an excess of CO2 going into the atmosphere. And as a result, CO2 is increasing and the temperature is increasing. Yeah. Well, the ocean acts as a global life support system. It helps regulate the climate of the planet. And it does that by absorbing heat and CO2 from the atmosphere. And a consequence of that is if the ocean is absorbing atmospheric heat and atmospheric CO2, then the temperature of the ocean is increasing and it's also absorbing more CO2. So a consequence of that is that actually the pH will drop and it becomes more acidic.
0: Hmm. And that acid is like literally can start to erode some of the skeletons of animals in the ocean, right?
2: Right. So a consequence of ocean acidification is that basically the chemistry of our water is changing And the consumption of carbonate ions makes it difficult for organisms to undergo a process called calcification or secrete calcium carbonate skeletons or organisms. So for example, a lot of organisms have calcium carbonate skeletons like corals or like the shells, like the bivalves, the mollusks, even algae have some sort of calcium carbonate sort of protective structure. And so what happens is it can make calcification and secreting those calcium carbonate structures more difficult. But as also a consequence, the pH is dropping and our ocean is becoming more acidic. And so you can think about, there's probably that example where your parents would say, oh, drinking all that soda is going to rot your teeth, you know, because it's acidic. And so if you ever did that experiment in science class where you put a shell or a tooth and a soda and watch it dissolve over time, it's sort of...
0: Sort of the same.
2: Right. And so we've actually seen a... 0.1 pH units dropped since pre-industrial times, but that actually, it's a logarithmic scale. So that actually equates to about a 30% increase in acidification in our ocean since pre-industrial times. Wow. And they've actually predicted that that could increase by another 120% by the year 2100 if CO2 emissions continue at current rates.
0: So this is all very bad. And I think even relative to other ecosystems, things are pretty severe in the coral reefs of the world. But before I go on to the more hopeful side of the story here, which I'm really excited to get into, I just wanted to ask the very basic question, which is what is coral? Because understanding this seems key to how you're working to save the reefs. I I think most people think of coral as like rocks on a mantle or something, but coral isn't a rock, right?
2: Right. It's an animal. It's a colonial animal that lives in symbiosis with other organisms like single-celled algae and microbes and bacteria, but it is an animal. And at the very basic form, you have a polyp, which is one animal, and it has a mouth and a ring of tentacles, and it forms the colony by budding and dividing and producing thousands of those polyps. It does feed. It can feed itself by trapping little zooplankton, little marine critters with its stinging tentacles and bring it to its mouth. But actually the Majority of its nutritional requirements come from its symbiotic partner, a single-celled algae that provides more than 90% of the nutritional requirements through photosynthesis. So that symbiotic relationship is absolutely fundamental to the survival and coping ability of the coral under stressful conditions, particularly ocean warming.
0: So you have a piece of coral, and it's actually made up of a bunch of these little tiny polyps working together in a kind of colony. And each one of those has tentacles, like tentacles in a sea anatomy, but obviously they're a little bit different. And also they have these like in-house factories of algae that generate food for them as well. So they look so simple, but they're actually so elaborate. And I love that.
2: It's definitely, they look simple, but they're very complex, very fascinating organisms that have So many different attributes that make them just really interesting to study, but also just, again, critical for the ecosystem.
0: Yeah. And why are they so colorful?
2: That's a great question. So a lot of times the source of the color for corals is that algae, is that symbiotic algae. And so Hmm. when you see coral bleaching, you're actually seeing the white skeleton of the coral. Hmm. And they're still tissue, but it's transparent because those colorful symbiotic algae have left the host. And so that's what you're seeing is the skeleton.
0: And then bleaching is the process where the coral kind of like ejects the symbiotic algae and that's related to rising temperatures, right?
2: Correct. So a major consequence of ocean warming is coral bleaching, which is actually responsible for about 50% of the loss of corals worldwide, as well as on the Great Barrier Reef. And what happens is when the ocean sea surface temperature gets too high or too high too many times in a row You know, over a season, the coral basically is beyond the thermal threshold that it can effectively cope with. It gets stressed out and as a consequence, it expels that symbiotic algae. And essentially when you see the coral bleach, it's essentially starving. Hmm. And so if the heat stress doesn't subside or if there's too many recurrent heat, hmm. acute events, it'll just keep doing that and the coral will essentially starve to death.
0: So that all sounds pretty dire, but there is hope. And at the center of that hope is the work of marine biologist Hannah Cook and her colleagues. She'll tell us about underwater forests made of PVC pipes, tricking coral into thinking day is night, and other cool feats of marine science after the break.
1: Support for the gray area comes from Shopify. Imagine an action movie where the hero has to sell 1,000 Barbra Streisand t-shirts in 72 hours to save a major American city. Save the city from what exactly? That's for audiences to decide. But how would they do it? They'd use Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform flexible enough to help your business sell at every stage of growth whether you're the main character in a tentpole action movie or the real-life CEO of a multinational company. No matter what you're making, Shopify can help you sell it. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, Shopify offers the flexibility to support your operation. They also offer something called Shopify Magic, an AI-powered helper created to help you stress less and sell more. Try it for yourself. You can sign up for a one dollar per month trial period at shopify.com slash box you can go to shopify.com slash box now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash box
0: so one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you is because you are among the scientists who are working to address this problem, to address the decline of reefs. And beyond putting a cap on carbon emissions, which is obviously a very important part of solving the decline of reefs, you can also restore reefs, which I've read a bit about. Is this a bit like restoring a forest, planting trees?
2: The concept is exactly the same. It's active restoration. You are propagating organisms and then putting them back out in their natural habitat.
0: And so can you literally plant coral on like a degraded reef?
2: Yes. And that's one of the primary interventions that we carry out. So it involves taking corals from the wild and cutting them into small or replicate pieces and then growing them out in a land or field nursery. You are correct. It's similar to propagating plants. You have a plant and you want to have another plant, you can take a little stem cutting from it, and now you have a second plant. But importantly, they are clonal, you know, they're genetically identical because they come from the same parent colony. Right. And something cool that we've learned as a consequence of this is that it actually elicits a compensatory growth response and causes the coral tissue to grow up to 50 times faster. So we can create a very large number of corals in a very short amount of time and plant them back on the reef to increase coral cover very rapidly.
0: So you can basically like break a coral into small pieces and each of those pieces is going to grow super quickly because it's essentially trying to heal itself.
2: Exactly. And also because we grow them in sort of stable, optimal conditions that promotes even faster growth. When we rear and produce and grow these corals in a land-based nursery, we don't have things like sedimentation and predation and whatnot. So we can really just facilitate that faster growth.
0: And I want you to just describe what some of these nurseries look like, because they're pretty cool. Like you think of a nursery of baby trees or plants for your garden, but these are nurseries of tiny pieces of coral growing. And some of them are like hanging on these elaborate PVC pipe, fiberglass trees underwater in the ocean.
2: So we have two different types of nurseries. We first have a land-based nursery that is about 70 to 80. We call them raceways. They're just large rectangular tanks about... Six feet long by two feet deep by three feet wide. So there's different types of corals they have different morphologies, and where we kind of fragment and grow them depends on that morphology. So corals that are mounding or boulder, sort of like the round ones that don't fragment so easily, we'll use a saw on land to cut them into small pieces, and then we grow them out in the land nursery. But for the branching corals because they produce branches, you can easily snap off those branches. And we hang them from little pieces of monofilament line on those PVC trees that you just described. They're basically a PVC tree that has different arms. And we can really quickly just hang those little pieces of coral fragments and they grow really quickly in the field nurseries. And it's basically just these PVC trees about an acre on a sandy bottom habitat away from reefs and people. Hmm. And we have about a few hundred trees with tens of thousands of coral fragments growing on them. Wow.
0: And so the idea is that you'll eventually actually plant these or glue these pieces of coral onto a natural reef. And I love to think about just the challenge that is involved in working an underwater condition. And I know this is like a normal thing for you. When I'm underwater, I'm just mostly on the verge of panicking. So I imagine it's like hard (laughs) to actually go around gluing coral to the ground. Like that is your work. What does that actually look like? Are you Using glue underwater?
2: So primarily I use epoxy to put corals on the reef, but we also can use nails and zip ties. And so what that looks like is we call it a plug. It's a little ceramic plug with a circular head and a little stem. If the coral is on that, we'll snip the stem off and then we'll just epoxy it to the reef. And if we are working with the branching corals, then we can hammer a nail into the reef and zip tie that coral to the nail. And our methodology is to actually outplant replicate fragments that are from the same parent colonies. So they're clonal and we'll actually outplant them in little clusters. And the reason why we do that is because over time they'll grow. And when they come in contact with each other, they'll recognize each other as self and fuse and form a larger colony faster.
0: Okay. So we just talked about breaking coral up and speeding up its growth that way and then creating more coral to put on the reef. But I know that there's also this other side of restoration that involves actually getting corals to breed. They are animals, so they do breed. How do you get corals to breed? And then how do you use that for restoration?
2: That's a great question. So... Historically, coral restoration was primarily based off of this coral gardening methodology, which is the fragmentation of corals. That's a form of asexual reproduction, but corals also sexually reproduce. And most species, about 85% of them are broadcast spawning species. And what that means is During annual mass-synchronized spawning events, the colonies will release gamete bundles. So most species are hermaphrodites, and they produce eggs and sperm. And so they will sexually reproduce through these annual reproductive cycles by releasing these gametes into the water column.
0: And so this is literally like you're seeing a couple days a year a kind of like eruption of sperm and eggs that are just coming out of the corals in these little packets. And then is the idea that different individuals will mix with each other? Like, how does it actually produce offspring?
2: So each parent's hermaphrodite releases eggs and sperm into the water column, and then eggs and sperm from different parent individuals will fertilize each other to form an embryo. That embryo then will develop into a planula larvae that can actually swim or disperse through ocean currents. And then once it receives the correct cues from a healthy reef, it'll actually settle back onto the reef. Then through asexual reproduction, it forms the colony by budding and forming new polyps.
0: This reminds me of cicadas that erupts from the ground all at once every so often. Yeah. How do the corals know how to sync up with each other so that they can mix at the right time?
2: So because corals can't talk to each other, they rely on a very specific set of environmental cues to regulate the timing of gamete release. And some of the major cues include ocean temperature, but also solar radiance and the lunar cycle. So in general, the ocean temperature influences what month or months the corals will spawn, while the lunar cycle will dictate what nights And then the sunset moonrise times can regulate what hour that the corals will actually
0: release gametes. Wow, that's very cool. So if you are interested in populating a reef that is dying with new coral, why does this come into play? Like, why is breeding important?
2: First of all, it's important because it's a really important source of genetic variation. So as we already talked about the asexual restoration, where you just produce a large number of different we'll call them genetic varieties, you only propagate a limited number of genetic varieties. Whereas with sexual reproduction, consequence of genetic recombination is that genes get shuffled and then offspring inherit different combinations of traits from the parents, exactly as it happens in humans. We're all produced through sexual reproduction and we all inherit different combinations of traits from our parents. Mm. And the reason why this is important is for a few buzzwords. I'll say genetic diversity, resilience, and adaptive potential. And I'll explain what those mean. So imagine you have a population that was produced through the asexual fragmentation where, let's say you have a thousand corals, a thousand colonies, but they all came from the same parent colony. So they're all genetically identical. They're clonal. Well, now imagine that a new disease comes through and that genetic variety happens to be susceptible to that disease. All 1,000 of those colonies are very likely to respond in the same way. And if they're susceptible, that population has a higher risk of going extinct. Right. Whereas with a genetically diverse population where it's breeding, it's producing offspring, it's producing offspring with different traits, you're more likely to have different individuals that have different traits that actually allow them to survive, cope, and carry on the population. So not everyone will survive, but the idea of natural selection. So the idea is that some of them will survive and carry on the population.
0: Right. So when you break a coral into pieces, all those pieces are genetically identical. So if one is susceptible to a disease, then they all might be. Whereas if you are breeding corals and you have tons of babies, each one of those is genetically distinct. And some of them might just naturally have some kind of resilience or resistance to, in this case, disease. And that is obviously a benefit if you're trying to think about the long-term viability of a coral reef.
2: Definitely. And so the other quick benefits of reproduction are that it can replenish a depleted adult population after a disturbance. So say there's a disease or bleaching event, some individuals die, the survivors can replenish the population. Also, because the larvae can swim, they can disperse to other reefs, other populations, and support really important processes called gene flow. And then finally, the other reason why it's important to breed corals, why I even have a job, it's actually quite sad. It's because most of the most important species on the Florida reef tract or Florida's coral reef are actually not reproducing anymore. So we are failing to see new generations of corals show up on our reefs and sexual cycles are failing in the wild. So basically, we have to step in and carry out this process by hand in the lab to ensure the benefits of sexual reproduction are realized for our restored populations. And back to those two key words I wanted to just touch on again about resilience and adaptive potential. When you have a diverse population, that imparts resilience to the population because as I already described, some may not survive, but some will. And that population will be able to carry on. And that basically underlines the idea of adaptive potential. There's enough different individuals in the population to support the possibility of adaptation over time when the environment changes.
0: So you mentioned, like, this is why it's so important that scientists step in to help corals breed. There are so few of them that this isn't even happening on its own. How do you do that? Like, are you going out to sea and collecting these packets of eggs and sperm? Or is this mostly happening in the lab?
2: Well, actually, we have a few different strategies. One strategy is to go out to... Remaining wild populations, which there are not that many and they're quite small, but there are a few. So we can go out and we can collect gametes in situ, meaning in the environment when they actually spawn. Another strategy is we actually bring the parent corals to the lab and spawn them in the lab. And this is easier and safer because coral spawning coincides with hurricane season down here. Mm. And so because corals (laughs) spawn at night, a lot of times I've had to cancel missions because. There's unfavorable conditions, or a hurricane, or a tropical storm, or the weather's bad. And you're doing it at night, so there's an additional level of complexity and and risk there.
0: Right. So to aid with coral sacks, you basically have to boat out at night. It's the middle of hurricane season. Like, how do you collect the spawn when you're out scuba diving?
2: We use nets. So it's like a net. It's a mesh net, so water can go through, but the gametes don't. And then you have a funnel on top that has a little float. Hmm. So it kind of just hovers over the colony. And when the colony releases the gamete bundles, which is a package of the eggs and sperm, the eggs are buoyant. So they float to the surface and they float through the net into a little collection cup that you have on top of the funnel.
0: And then you can just take it off. And then you can like mix them together.
2: Mm -hmm. And you can take it back to the lab and you mix them together. And that's what basically is my role as managed breeding, assisted sexual reproduction. So you can mix the different parents in the lab.
0: Huh. And I know that you have a very special tank in your lab, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to visit you in Florida. Can you tell us about this tank? I know it has different names, one of which is a spawning tank, but yes, you mentioned that it is safer and easier to do this in the lab. How does that work?
2: Right, so that's the third way that we can get corals to spawn is by using these special systems. So I call it the ESS, the Exituse Spawning System, just because I'm a fan of abbreviations. But basically it's an aquaria that simulates all of those environmental conditions, temperature, and lunar cycles that the corals need to develop gametes and reproduce. And so we can simulate all of those conditions in the lab using the system and actually get the corals to spawn when we want. It can trick them into thinking night is day and day is night, so we can actually spawn them during the day and work during the day because that's a lot easier than working at 3 o'clock in the morning. Right. And so it just gives us greater control and manipulation over the process, which is great for research, but also restoration.
0: And will you describe like what these tanks look like? Not to hate on coral but again i think people expect to see like colorful fish and nemo and so forth in the tanks but in these tanks you just have coral i personally think it's very cool do these corals have personality do you love seeing them interacting with them feeding them
2: definitely so i have to actually just give a shout out to my coral reproduction staff Biologist Celia Lito, because one of her primary roles is taking care of the system. It's her baby, and she feeds the corals every day and she gives me status reports of who's doing well, (laughs) how you know this genotype is responding. But basically, it looks like a large aquaria on top. Underneath, there's like a sump that has different levels of filtration, mechanical filtration and whatnot. But in the top, it just looks like a regular coral reef tank. There's lights. And then inside, we have different coral that have different shape and different colors. And yeah, some of them, you know, I guess you would characterize them as potentially have different personalities, which is anthropomorphizing, <laughs> but... (laughs) Yeah, some of them always have their tentacles out and are super happy and we say fluffy because they look fluffy when their tentacles out. Some of them always have them in and are a little bit grumpy and then some are a little bit more shy. Maybe they only put their tentacles out when you feed them. So I know that one of Celia's favorite part of the day is feeding the corals in the tank because she just gets (laughs) to see them come alive and, and use their tentacles and outstretch them like little arms and grab for the little food and it's pretty exciting.
0: So this breeding and restoration work is all well and good. But is it really good if we're just putting coral back into the same toxic conditions that killed it in the first place? Coral scientist Hannah Cook gives us her answer after the break. So we talked about the value of breeding because it just creates all this genetic diversity which really helps when you're thinking about restoration but there's also like a step beyond that that is really centered to your work which is like thinking about which traits different types of corals have whether it's resistance to disease or more tolerance to rising temperatures things that coral is struggling to survive under in the wild where are we in terms of making corals smarter more adaptable through things like selective breeding. Is that something that seems to be working?
2: Right. A lot of people ask us, okay, so you're putting out all these corals, but back into not a great environment, how do we know that they're going to survive and not just die?
0: Right, right. And
2: we have a few different strategies. One of them is propagating survivors. So, for example, the Florida Reef Tract has already undergone decades of stress, and most of the corals are dead. So the ones that are there are assumed to have some level of increased stress tolerance. So we can propagate them, both asexually and sexually, with the assumption that if they're more stress tolerant, then they'll produce offspring that are more stress tolerant. But to your question, we can also do managed breeding or selective breeding, where we can do stress test experiments or what we call resilience screening. We can take the different genetic varieties, the natural corals from the reef, and then expose them to different conditions, whether that's ocean warming, ocean acidification, different diseases, contemporary environmental conditions, also projected environmental conditions. We have an idea of what the ocean may look like in the year 2100. So we can test these genetic varieties under all these different conditions, find which ones are disease resistant or more thermally tolerant. And then that information is fed into my managed breeding designs, and I can breed the corals based off of those different desirable traits or phenotypes. And so first of all, we need to know what are the mechanisms conferring those traits and can they be passed on to offspring? And if they can, then we can breed corals that are disease resistant and thermally tolerant. And so that kind of gets at like individual stress tolerance. And so we're putting out corals that are individually more stress tolerant. And then by putting out a diverse population, we impart resilience to the population. So you can look at like individual resilience and then population resilience. So we're kind of like hitting all those points and making sure we're putting out stress tolerant individuals, but also genetically diverse populations.
0: Right. So you have like this raceway, this tank outside with corals growing in it, and you can literally crank up the heat or something to a temperature that might be the ocean in 15 years, see which ones survive. And then the next step is like figuring out whether if those corals that survive have babies, whether those babies can also survive those higher temperatures. And that's over time, you could potentially like breed a new crop of coral that's in this case able to tolerate these higher temperatures.
2: Correct. Yes, we can try to breed to combine different beneficial traits. So an example would be, you know, if you wanted to produce a human that had a certain hair color, a certain eye color, you could do the pedigree and the different breeding to sort of create that. And it's the same thing with corals. But I just want to highlight, we don't want to create one really fit or really awesome, one or two.
0: Like a super coral.
2: Exactly. We don't want to just create a couple because the reason why is, again, the environment can always change. And even though that individual might be, let's say, the fittest at this point in time, the environment is always changing and in the future it may not. So again, that's why diversity and sexual reproduction is so important.
0: And have you discovered any corals that seem to be resistant to heat or disease or other threats?
2: Yes, So it's been documented in many studies, many corals and many reef basins that thermotolerance has a heritable component, meaning it can be passed on from parents to offspring. So the idea is there we can do selective breeding based off of thermotolerance, which is great because coral bleaching and mortality related to that is one of the main drivers. The second one is disease, and that's really important for us in this region because this region has particularly bad disease outbreaks.
0: Yeah, I've seen that. It's crazy. Right.
2: We have the worst recorded disease outbreak in recorded history. So there's a lot of work done on coral disease in this area. There's different diseases that affect different species and species complexes, but we have found that depending on species and disease, there are different genetic varieties that are disease-resistant. Hmm. And so right now, we're trying to understand what is the mechanism underlying that resistance. And if we can understand that, then we can figure out how to manipulate it and use it to our advantage for
0: selective breeding. Do these corals get like special treatment or special like spaces in the tanks because they're like, we're resistant?
2: (laughs) (laughs) No, they don't get special, any special places. They're just within the nursery with everyone else. Because again, like... Some might be disease-resistant, but they're not thermally tolerant. So we keep everyone and we keep everyone together. But we do have a few genets that we do speak very highly of and are very (laughs) sought after for research and restoration because they are disease-resistant and they have other
0: beneficial traits. Genets are like genetic individuals.
2: Exactly. Genets are different genetic varieties. So that's the term we use for corals. Another word you might hear is like genotype. Right. But it's basically different genetic
1: individuals.
0: Okay. So when we think about restoring reefs and making sure that corals have the best chance of surviving when they're planted, there are other threats, including a lot of algae, at least in Florida. And I know that your lab, you guys also have these crabs that one of your researchers is working on that could be deployed on the reef along with restoration to help get rid of some of this algae that could potentially impede the growth of coral. Tell us about this army of crabs.
2: Before I actually explain the crabs, I want to explain why we need the crabs, because I think that's really important. There are multiple reasons why coral sexual cycles are failing in the wild. One of them is that the populations are so small and degraded, they're not dense enough to support fertilization. So you can imagine like having a few colonies really far spread out and those tiny microscopic gametes trying to find each other in ocean. That's really difficult. Or corals might be spawning at different times because those environmental cues break down. And so If they don't spawn within the few hours of each other, the gametes will die because they're only viable for a few hours. One of the other reasons, though, that we're not seeing new coral babies show up on our reefs is because there's been a shift in this region from coral-dominated to algal-dominated reefs, primarily driven by the loss of a really important grazer, the long-spined sea urchin, diadema. There was a major die-off in the late 70s and 80s because of a disease, and the population never really recovered. So as a result, our reefs are just covered in turf and macroalgae and try to imagine a tiny little larvae trying to find a place on a reef, an open habitat, open real estate to settle. It's just like covered in like a mushy carpet, basically. Yeah, yeah. And so there's no place. And if it does settle, it just gets out-competed by the algae. So we have a major problem. Our reefs are covered in algae. And so Dr. Jason Spadaro His research is to figure out can we see increased coral recruitment with the help of these Caribbean king crabs, spider crabs, because they are great grazers.
0: Hmm. First of all, love the image of crabs doing such a good service because these things are like pretty gnarly looking. They look like live moving rocks. And this researcher, as you mentioned, Jason, He just has so many crabs in his lab, right? And potentially they could be the janitors of the sea if these experiments prove out.
2: Definitely. So in the last five months, he's already produced 12,000 juveniles. Oh my God. And we're expanding. Moat has a facility called the Moat Aquaculture Park up in Sarasota. And right now they're in the development stage of building out the aquaculture facility to handle a quarter of a million juveniles at any one time.
0: Wow. Amazing. Yeah, I really hope that works. And I also, I've talked to Jason and he mentioned to me that they might end up partnering with a local school to help condition the crabs to be in the wild and afraid of predators. Because if they're not afraid of predators and you put them out on a reef, they might die really easily. So you have to like train them to become scared of cod and other fish. And he said they might actually get students to make hand puppets of cod and other predators and put the hand puppets in the water and poke at the crabs. They get scared of the hand puppets, which they associate with predators, which sounds so strange, but amazing. But
2: also awesome in a weird way. Yes. <laughs> like, sign me up. <laughs> Can you imagine being a kid? Be are like, what'd you do today? Well, I put a sock puppet of a fish on my hand and I tried to scare (laughs) some crabs.
0: (laughs) I know, it's so good. So to me, the story of coral restoration, it really seems pretty hopeful. I mean, there's so many environmental stories that are dark, they're not hopeful, even like solutions or things that sound like solutions, planting millions of trees, like sometimes they actually don't really work. But in this case, Everything I've heard about coral reef restoration from you and other folks, it just seems like it's pretty successful. And so I'm wondering, I guess, first of all, would you characterize this as a hopeful story? Do you see a future in which we do repopulate the dying reefs in a way in which they can survive these continued and worsening threats?
2: Yes, I would say that we are hopeful. I mean, without hope, I think it would be hard to get up and go to work every day if you didn't at least believe that there was a chance to make a positive impact. On that note, I just want to say core restoration doesn't work in a vacuum. It's not a magic bullet. It's not going to work without other combination of active and passive measures, things like habitat protection and regulation of human activities. So we still need to reduce carbon emissions. We still need to improve the quality of our oceans and whatnot. But yes, we have a lot of reasons to be hopeful. And even in the last few years, I've made some observations that provide hope to myself. And just as an example, in 2020, we documented the first outplants of a slow-growing massive species to reach sexual maturity and spawn in nature after restoration. Mm. And this was the first case of this ever recorded. The reason why it was such a big deal is because and stony corals, sexual maturity is size dependent, not age-dependent. So they have to be a certain size before they can produce that first generation. And they only reproduce maybe once a year. And it can take years or decades for a larvae to settle on the reef and then grow to the size to be reproductive. So, you know, with coral restoration, our goals are to develop interventions for restoration, but also to accelerate timelines because corals grow so slowly, for example, millimeters to centimeters a year. So it takes a long time to do these processes, whether that's asexual fragmentation and grow out or sexual reproduction. So anything that accelerates the timelines just promotes faster population and reef recovery. Mm. And so the ultimate goal of all of restoration should be to get restored populations to a sexually mature, self-sustaining state with enough diversity that they can cope with environmental change. And so that's what we're showing is that we can actually produce reproductive colonies in five years. So that takes that many years off of waiting for those corals to reproduce in nature and
0: produce those next generations. I mean, which is to say like this is working, like you've seen this happening now.
2: Definitely. And every year I document more and more of Moat's restored populations coming along in terms of sexual maturity, reaching these developmental milestones within expected timeframes. And so it's super exciting every year to go out and see a new population that's
0: ready to be parents. And what is it like to see a coral spawn? That sounds kind of exciting.
2: A lot of people equate it to like reverse snowfall. It's different for each species. For some, it's instantaneous and it all happens at once. And for some, it's like a slow dribble over an extended period of time. But for the species that I saw, the mountainous star coral, basically, you're just sitting and and waiting and watching it. And it'll give you a little signal. It'll do something called gamete bundle staging, where it'll move the gamete bundles into the mouth and you can actually see it. And when you see this, you know that spawning is imminent. And then you literally just hover there as quietly, as calmly as possible. And then all of a sudden, just instantaneously, the entire colony will erupt and these colorful little orbs come out and then they hover for a second and then they slowly float up to the surface like a snow globe in reverse.
0: Wow, that is amazing. I would love to see that. Like, Obviously, success requires that we can continue to respond to warming and other threats in terms of building corals that are resilient to them. Are we moving fast enough to outpace warming with forced adaptations, basically? Like, is there a reality in which we just can't win here because these threats are moving so quickly?
2: I mean, that's certainly a possibility, but I don't think we are far enough into this to know. I think it's still pretty early, but it's still a lot of promises, and I think it's important. That's why we do things like resilience and science-based restoration, you know, because putting out corals, there's a very strong level of responsibility there. You're creating these populations. You are setting that trajectory, that evolutionary trajectory.
0: Right. You're playing God a little bit.
2: You are, right? And so you have to be really thoughtful and very strategic and really consider genetics when doing this. And so I think it's too early to say have we reached that point yet? Because the environment is still changing. But just an example, since 2008, most scientists have put out more than 157,000 corals, and we routinely have more than 90% survival after one year. So I do think we are moving in the right direction.
0: I hate to go dark again, but what would the world look like if this doesn't work, if we can't restore the reefs? Ooh. <laughs>
2: Have you seen any of those post-apocalyptic movies? No,
0: (laughs) (laughs) I actually have seen all of them.
2: (laughs) I mean, you're talking about uh, reduction essential ecosystem services and function. So think about the vulnerability of all the people on the coastlines. Think about the inability to feed, populations to feed themselves. Now, that's from the human perspective, right? So a lot of times humans think about humans first. And so you can think about a reduction in food and shelter, a reduction in jobs.
0: Right. People who work in fisheries and so forth.
2: Yeah. But from the natural world's perspective, as I said, biodiversity is absolutely essential to maintaining healthy ecosystems and environments. And coral reefs are some of the most biodiverse ecosystems. So a collapse in coral reef ecosystems would cause a collapse in so many other organisms and trophic cascades and networks of organisms that rely on each other. And so honestly, I'd hate to really imagine what that looks like. But if we get to that point, I think we will have to consider, and people are already considering more extreme interventions like artificial reefs or genetically engineering things. But no one that I know, like coral reef scientists, actually thinks that we are going to get our coral reefs back to historical pristine conditions. Mm. I think we're too far gone for that. I think that's not really a realistic goal anymore to get them to be what they used to be. The baseline has shifted and the goal is now to make sure that they still provide essential, fundamental ecosystem services and functions. So the reefs of our future may not look like what they did in the past and they may be more human engineered, which in my opinion is a little bit sad because I don't think we can create anything as beautiful and as dynamic as nature can.
0: Yeah, that is a great place to end. Hannah, thank you so much for talking to me today.
2: Thank you so much for the opportunity. It was great to meet again and chat up. And if you do wanna see Coral Spawning, let me know. And maybe one time we can get out and go see some rare events in the ocean.
0: Yes, I wanna see reverse snow. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikas. Our editor is Amy Drozdovska. Patrick Boyd mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director of Vox Talk. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement? We want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, and what we could improve. And if you have any ideas for future guests or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends, and please subscribe, rate, and review. And join us on Monday for a brand new episode of Vox Conversations.